You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Nations hope to protect their fragile freedom through the international body that met for the first time in 1920. The League of Nations held its first meeting in a Swiss hotel. Its supporters shared an optimistic belief that a new era of international relations was beginning. They were undeterred by the fact that the Americans weren't there, Congress had refused to join, and that the Russians and the Germans weren't members either. They believed the League could replace the bad old world of secret diplomacy with open discussion. Public opinion would always be listened to. Weak countries would have a voice as well as the strong. Poland's Prime Minister, the pianist Paderewski, called it the dawn of a new order. The League tried to build up popular support for its work. Jennifer Hart campaigned for the idea in Britain. My role in the League of Nations Union was to try and get members of the public to understand the ideas behind the League, especially that it was a totally new thing, especially this concept of it was, um, one was concerned if Nation A was attacking Nation B, you couldn't just stand on the sidelines, and to get public opinion to bring pressure on government to use the machinery of the League. So one didn't go around looking for faults in the government or weaknesses so much as saying, look, it's a wonderful new construction, and it could be made to work if people really wanted to make it work. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on the 8th day of March, 2013, and you are tuned into episode 261 of the Corbett Report podcast, International Law. The idea of an international rule of law appeals very fundamentally to our innate sense of justice. We all want to see criminals and wrongdoers brought to justice, and of course it seems a great injustice that people can flout the rule of law simply because they lie in another jurisdiction from the one where we happen to be residing or the ones where the actual crimes were committed. This, of course, has always been the problem of international or interregional uh, conflict throughout human history. And that is fundamentally what war has always been about in one form or another. Who gets to make the laws? Who gets to rule over other people? Who gets to arbitrate disputes? And how those disputes are arbitrated are ultimately usually decided by military conflict. Such has been the case throughout human history, and that's why in the, the, at the dawn of the 20th century, and with the dawn and the advent of new technologies that brought a new type of mechanized horror to the world, and embroiled, embroiled much of the world in the Great War, we saw an outpouring of support among the population and amongst various sectors of society for this idea of an international rule of law that would make sure that such a conflict would never happen again. And this, at least so we are told by the official history books, is how Woodrow Wilson came to start propounding the idea of the covenant of the League of Nations 
and that he went on to champion the idea, and although the U.S. Senate did not ratify it, so the U.S. never officially joined the League of Nations, it did actually get formed and did start to try to assert its power on the international stage. Now, for those of you who do know the real history, you'll know that a lot of that is, uh, well, complete bull. And at the very least, we can point to the fact that Woodrow Wilson, in fact, was not the author of the Covenant of the League of Nations, as is sometimes ascribed to him. It was, in fact, Colonel Edward Mandel House, which is a name that I hope will ring a bell with some of the longtime listeners. If it does not, I suggest you go back to episode 234 of this podcast, How to Carve Up the World, where we played an excerpt from a very important lecture by James Perloff about uh, the CFR in the Shadows of Power, where he explained in some detail not only about the foundation of the League of Nations and how that really sources back to the cast of characters that formed the original Council on Foreign Relations, but how that same cast of characters went on to found the United Nations through similar subterfuge and sleight of hand. So it is important to understand the historical context of the development of this idea of an international rule of law throughout the 20th century, because that brings us to where we are in the 21st century, and it helps prepare us against the types of arguments that are used to try to undermine sovereignty and to try to get us to put our faith in an international justice system to properly arbitrate international disputes and bring criminals around the world to justice. Now, if you are as skeptical of that claim as I am, then, well, at least we're on board. But we should understand that historical context so we better understand how to refute those types of arguments and we can better point to the historical examples of how this has failed on de- by design time and time again. And to start doing this, we should look not at the failure of the League of Nations in preventing World War II, for example, although that is an interesting phenomenon. But, of course, the uh, the ready answer that the internationalists would have for that is that the League of Nations didn't have enough power. It didn't have any teeth to it. It needed something like the Security Council at the United Nations in order to give it not just legitimacy, but a little bit of uh, teeth to those policies so that it could actually enforce them. Well, counter to that, let's take a look at another example that is often used as the example par excellence of international rule of law and the international tribunal, which is still oft cited as the example of what we should look to in terms of victor's justice being not just lining people up against a wall and shooting them all, but giving them a fair trial and establishing some of the basic principles and precepts of international law, which establish the the jurisdiction of international court to operate and to convict people who are not necessarily of a, a, a country or a region in which the law is op- in which the court is operating. And to do that, we will actually look at the example of Nuremberg and the Nuremberg trials held after the Second World War to convict those members of the, the upper members of the Nazi party that had been captured by the Allied powers. This is a very interesting story, and I I really hope people will look further into the Nuremberg trials, what came out of them, how they developed, etc. But I'd like to take a look specifically at a very interesting little clip in which uh, some of the cast of characters are, well, they're interesting in terms of their relations and what this says about where this idea for an international court actually comes from. Morgenthau was opposed in the United States by Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson. Stimson believed that the German war criminals should be dealt with only by trial before an international military tribunal. Stimson's view was 
that to punish these men after a trial would stand better in history. Moreover, that this process would develop a record of Nazi criminality which would stand in history. Simpson's views ultimately prevailed in the United States. The laws of God and of man have been violated and the guilty must not go unpunished. On May 8, 1945, President Truman appointed Supreme Court Justice Robert H. Jackson as United States Chief of Counsel with the mission of bringing together the four major powers in developing a agreement for the trial of the major German war criminals. He also said that this must be a real trial, not a show trial, not a Stalin trial, but a trial which could result in acquitting a defendant if the evidence did not show guilt. There were hundreds of thousands of foot soldiers, let's say, of Nazism who carried out the, uh, the mass executions, operated the gas chambers, shot the hostages, and so on. But what about the top leaders? How did you convict them? None of them uh, shot the bank guard, blew the safe, or drove the getaway car. Their hands were clean. There, there existed no international uh, court. There, inter there existed, at the time uh, they were preparing for the trial, no body of law. There existed no judges. There existed no courthouse. Uh, the, the instruments for trying uh, a drunk driver in any part of the United States were more complete than the instruments for trying mass murderers in Europe at the end of World War II. So they started from scratch. A lawyer in the War Department by the name of Murray Bernays was given the task of devising some kind of philosophy for this trial. Bernays came up with a brilliant idea, uh, which was the conspiracy theory, that the whole Nazi movement was just not simply a po legitimate political movement, but it was a criminal conspiracy designed to seize the territory of Germany's neighbors, to steal from these nations their wealth and their people, and to exterminate their Jews. And this conspiracy theory meant that by being a part of the Nazi leadership, you were part of a criminal conspiracy, and it was a net that held these people. It was agreed that three major types of crimes would be charged against these individuals. The first was the crime of waging aggressive war. The second was ordinary war crimes. And the third, crimes against humanity committed in the course of the war. Oh yes, Nuremberg was a victory for justice and it helped establish the new paradigm of an international rule of law so that never again could a nation ever commit an act of aggressive war and not have its leaders prosecuted for that act of aggression, right? Well, that's the ideal anyway, or supposedly that's the ideal, but it's interesting to see some of the connections of some of the people that were introduced in that clip. And by all means, again, please follow the link in the show notes so that you can watch the uh, full documentary. And there are some interesting pieces of history in there for those who don't know about the Nuremberg trial. But 
That clip started by introducing us to Henry L. Stimson, the Secretary of War, who was one of the leading proponents for the idea of a Nuremberg trial. And Henry L. Stimson, well, what's his connections? Uh, well, we'll come to that in a moment. One of the other key people in that was one of the lawyers for the War Department who helped to prosecute the Nuremberg trials and who was the one who came up with the legal framework for prosecuting them. His name was Colonel Murray Bernays. And if the name Bernays sounds awfully familiar, that's because it uh, if it reminds you, for example, of Edward Bernays, that uh, the father of modern PR and spin propaganda, that's because it is, in fact, a relation of Edward Bernays. What a small world. In this case, Murray Bernays, Colonel Murray Bernays of the War Department, was, in fact, the ex-brother-in-law of Edward Bernays. And if you are as confused as I am as to how an ex-brother-in-law can end up having the same surname as his ex-brother-in-law, I will refer you to a part in the, in the show notes uh, where I've linked to a document that uh, sources to an interview with Edward Bernays, um, where he, in fact, says that uh, Murray Bernays was the, bro uh, the husband of his sister, Hella, but they got divorced in 1924. But after that point, uh, Murray Bernays decided to keep his wife's last name in order to carry on the Bernays name. Bizarre, but there you go. So we have the Brother, ex-brother-in-law of the of uh, the father of modern PR and propaganda, who himself, by the way, if you'll recall correctly, was the nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, and we also have Henry L. Stimson of the secretary, the Secretary of War um, uh, uh, during World War II, who helped to bring about the Nuremberg trials altogether. And Henry L. Stimson has an interesting connection himself. He just happened to be. Well, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Yes, that same organization um, that was so deeply intertwined with the birth of the League of Nations. By the way, that comes directly from the Council on Foreign Relations official history page, so you can go there if you want more details about uh, why the CFR was behind the creation of the League of Nations. But here we have Henry L. Stimson, who himself was a CFR member, uh, writing in no less a publication than Foreign Affairs, the official publication of the Council on Foreign Relations in 1947, about the Nuremberg Trial, landmark in law. And yes, it goes on to talk about the Nazi conspiracy that was prosecuted at Nuremberg and how this established the legal precedent for prosecuting international war crimes and crimes against humanity, which is a phrase that has so much entered into our modern parlance that I imagine it, we can't even imagine a time before that was actually part of the regular discourse. But there it is, the crimes against humanity idea and the precedent was established at Nuremberg. And just like the League of Nations, which was founded on the idealistic uh, wave of, of support from people who genuinely did want peace and justice in the wake of World War I, so in the wake of World War II, people would go along with something like the Nuremberg Trials to try to bring peace and justice to the, uh, to the perpetrators of that Second World War and the people who so deservedly, obviously, did deserve to be prosecuted. They did commit terrible crimes, and they, they were terrible people who deserved to, be, to have justice handed to them. So why not set an international court and in so doing establish a precedent for the ages? So this was a key part of what came out of the Nuremberg trials. 
But this was supposedly, obviously, this is supposed to be opposed to the old order of things in which a country would try to invade another country, and if they lost, then their leaders would just be killed by the the winning side or, or put into jail arbitrarily or whatever it was that the victors wanted to do. This was supposed to establish the precedent. It doesn't matter who wins or loses in these types of conflicts. It's always going to be the same because this is the, the standards for international justice. Well, it's those types of promises aren't worth the paper they're not written on, as I'm sure you can imagine, and that's precisely the point. It is still victor's justice, and it's no uh, coincidence that the victors of World War II per, uh, prosecuted the losers and found them guilty. Uh, it's Again, it's the exact same thing, but it's done under the, the color of this international criminal court that, that, that goes beyond anything that... Uh, that 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 was used in times of old when these types of disputes were settled through the act of war. Well, we can fast forward in time from the Council on Foreign Relations supported League of Nations to the Council on Foreign Relations founded Nuremberg trials to uh, to the modern era in which the Council on Foreign Relations, surprise, surprise, has uh, still been instrumental in forwarding this idea of the international rule of law. And we can get this from one of the uh, one of the key members of the Council on Foreign Relations in the past half century, someone who was a director from 1977 to 1979 of the CFR, and who delivered a very memorable address to Congress on September 11th, 1990, that, well, you probably are at least partially familiar with, but it's important to put it in its broader context to understand that what was being talked about in this speech is specifically the formation of an international rule of law as the foundation for a new world order. And who am I talking about? Well, none other than President George H.W. Bush. A new partnership of nations has begun, and we stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge, a new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. And today that new world is struggling to be born. A world quite different from the one we've known. A world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle. A world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. A world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. This is the vision that I shared with President Gorbachev in Helsinki. He and other leaders from Europe, the Gulf, and around the world understand that how we manage this crisis today could shape the future for generations to come. The test we face is great, and so are the stakes. This is the first assault on the new world that we see, the first test 
of our metal. Had we not responded to this first provocation with clarity of purpose, if we do not continue to demonstrate our determination, it would be a signal to actual and potential despots around the world. America and the world must defend common vital interest, and we will. Oh yes, friends, make no mistake about it, the foundations of the New World Order, or at least the latest incarnation of the New World Order, have been laid around this uh, bedrock of international law, that we will no longer adhere to the law of the jungle, but we can come together as an order of nations to institute an international rule of law in which we will be freer and there will be more justice and more peace. Oh, and that has so signally defined the past two decades since that speech was made, hasn't it? And, of course, that speech being made on the, on the eve of the, the break, breaking of the, the first Gulf War. So we can see how far that type of rhetoric actually gets us. It basically puts people into a position where they are willing to go to war in order to up, uphold the international rule of law, which will supposedly bring more peace. And that's, again, the exact type of muddled think thinking that can be smoothed over and we can overlook those types of blatant contradictions because, again, as that commentator in the first clip today spoke about, uh, people will uh, can be led along because they want this idea to work. They want there to be an international rule of law. It appeals to our innate sense of justice. Well, that brings us to the point of the modern era, and again, we can simply make a note of the number of international conflicts that have developed and in which the U.S. and its NATO allies have been at the forefront for so long, including the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan for the past going on 12 years, and the, uh, the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Um, but we could look at all of those uh, individual instances and denote how this international rule of law has definitely not prevented the aggressor nations from being aggressors and has signally failed to prosecute the world's biggest war criminals. But more on that in a moment. First, let's take a look at the latest invocation and incarnation of this idea of the international rule of law. And, well, what better place to turn to for the formulation of this than... That, uh, that political heavyweight and, and very deep thinker, Angelina Jolie, the uh, UN goodwill ambassador, speaking at, uh, you can't make this stuff up, the Council on Foreign Relations. On my last trip to Chad, I asked a group of refugees, what do they need? What are their concerns? And one woman said, better access to water, Another said medicine, another better tents. And this young boy raised his hand and he said, we need a trial. And he'd heard that morning on BBC radio that the ICC had issued arrest warrants. And it meant something to him. He was asking for what any of us would ask for, having been violated, having had many horrific things happen to his family. And yet in my heart I knew that he may never see that trial that justice often seems like a luxury for the rich and wealthy nations. In far too many places I've been, I've seen refugees return to live among the same people that attacked them. Peace is placed before justice, often instead of justice, 
and often at the insistence of the perpetrator. And this is happening today with Joseph Kony in Uganda and with President Bashir in Sudan. They are threatening more violence and delaying or blocking aid if we attempt to bring them to justice. And often we listen to them. We let them dictate what will happen. We let those who destroyed their countries decide the future for their countries. And I believe, after finding myself returning to countries who, after a brief period of peace, are again at war, that there is no enduring peace without justice. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, I suppose, and an eyeful of Angelina Jolie is supposed to make the absolute outright imperialist war agenda of the U.S. and its NATO allies somehow more palatable. And uh, there's a lot to pick apart in what Jolie was actually saying there, but not really giving her too much credence as someone that we should be actually listening to or picking apart what she says. I think we at least have to understand what is being presented there and how it is being presented to us, and in no less a forum than an, a, a, a symposium that was being hosted by the Council on Foreign Relations, which also featured, at that very same symposium, the International Criminal Court prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, who might ring a bell to those who remember that back in the Libyan conflict, he was floating the idea of prosecuting uh, Gaddafi for war crimes, such as the war crime of trying to feed Viagra to his troops in order to fuel their raping of his own civilians. A bizarre, a stupid story that absolutely smacks of the same type of ridiculous, blatant war propaganda that fed the original Gulf War with the incubator baby story, and a story that eventually did prove to be a complete fabrication based on total lies, but one that was picked up on and dutifully reported by the mainstream media and that was being pursued at the very least for possible prosecution by the International Criminal Court, which should give us a window and into this modern era that we're living in, where the international rule of law is nothing other than a mask for the imperialist ambitions and the war warlike warmongering of countries like the United States and its allies. And this is a point that's been made many times in many different ways, but needs to be stressed in order to counteract the nice, flowery-sounding platitudes and language through which this lie is sold to you by millionaire Hollywood celebrities like Ms. Jolie. Um, and in order to break that down and understand what's really behind this, we have to take a look at an excellent article that was posted to globalresearch.ca in December of 2012 by Professor James Petrus of Binghamton University. He wrote an article called Legal Imperialism and International Law, Legal Foundations for War Crimes, Debt Collection, and Colonization. And uh, this is just a brilliant article that really breaks down what's behind this idea of Im imperial law, as he calls it. So let's just read a section from this article where where he writes, quote, Empire building throughout history is the result of conquest, the use of threat of superior military force. The U.S. global empire is no exception. Where compliant rulers invite or submit to imperial domination, such acts of treason on the part of puppet or client rulers usually precipitate popular rebellions, which are then suppressed by joint imperial and collaborator armies. They cite imperial legal doctrine to justify their intervention to repress a subject people in revolt. While empires arose through the direct or indirect use of unbridled force, the maintenance and consolidation of empires requires a legal framework. 
Legal doctrines precede, accompany, and follow the expansion and consolidation of empire for several reasons. Legality is really an extension of imperial conquest by other means. A state of constant warfare raises the cost of imperial maintenance. Force, especially in imperial democracies, undermines the sense of civic virtue which the rulers and citizens claim to uphold. Maintaining law and order in the conquered nations requires a legal system and doctrine to uphold imperial rule, giving the facade of legitimacy to the outside world, attracting collaborator classes and individuals, and providing the basis for the recruitment of local military, judicial, and police officials. Imperial legal pronouncements, whether issued directly by executive, judicial, military, or administrative bodies, are deemed the supreme law of the universe, superior to international law and protocols fashioned by non-imperial authorities and legal experts. This does not imply that imperial rulers totally discard international law. They just apply it selectively to their adversaries, especially against independent nations and rulers, in order to justify imperial intervention and aggression hence the legal bases for dismantling Yugoslavia or invading Iraq and assassinating its rulers. End quote. Well, that is a fascinating article. It's much longer than that small uh, clip, that, this snippet that we read there. So I will uh, urge you to go to the show notes and actually read the document for yourself. It's a very well thought out and very well constructed uh, essay about the idea of imperial law and what it really means. And I think it goes some way towards ripping the mask off of the uh, the, the face of this real enemy to to peace and uh, stability and freedom and all of the things that it seeks to supposedly bring to the people because it is just like any other law it is selectively applied to the people that the powers that be wanted to be applied to at the times that they want it to be applied so we can have these wonderful ideals about no one being able to wage aggressive war unless it happens to be the Bush regime, for example, wanting to invade Iraq, in which case it's perfectly okay, because that's preemptive self-defense, an idea which at its very heart goes absolutely 180 degrees against the principles of Nuremberg, but that's fine. They can be discarded when it's our side doing it, and of course our is in quotation marks because they do not represent you and me no matter what country you're in. They represent only the elite ruling class and the members of the Council on Foreign Relations and similar-minded groups. So we have to understand the idea of international law in that context who upholds this law and who and when is it applied to? Uh, who is it applied to and when is it applied? These are the important things to understand with any law, but of course, especially in international law where the stakes are so high. And on this note, I did recently have the chance to interview Professor Petrus about, well, we talked about Latin America mostly, but we did also at the end of the conversation talk specifically about this idea of international law versus imperial law. The U.S. Uh, foreign policy and uh, involvement in, in uh, overseas relations has been judged by international law and the Geneva Agreements, uh, some of the international court rulings, etc. And on the basis of that, they find correctly there's been a tremendous degree of violations, uh, uh, violations of sovereignty, violations uh, of human rights, uh, crimes against humanity, 
etc. And so people say it's lawless. But uh, in the United States, uh, legal doctrines have been pronounced uh, either through executive prerogatives, uh, assertions of executive prerogatives, based on consultation with uh, legal scholars, uh, a minority to be sure, that uh, provide a body of legal doctrine that justifies that, that that strengthens uh, executive prerogative power. And in other words, they've constructed a parallel and conflicting uh, legal doctrine which is an attempt to justify uh, president, presidential orders that sanction the killing of American citizens without trial or, or court processes, judicial processes. There's uh, laws that justify uh, illegal wiretapping or intrusions into private homes, arbitrary arrests, as well as uh, 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 publicly sanctioned assassinations. In other words, what we have is a uh, imperial legal doctrine which says this takes supremacy. Our law, our imperial laws, take precedence and supremacy over uh, the international body of legal doctrine. And that's exactly the way in which uh, imperial powers operate. They uh, they fashion the laws that are convenient and in accord with their imperial aspirations and, and interests rather than any uh, independent body of thought which has gone through uh, what we might call international jurisprudence. Well, then what are the implications of this for victims of the war crimes of these imperial powers to ever achieve justice for those crimes? Well, they, they have several recourse. Some of them go through the international court processes, and, and they have problems there because some of these judges in, in The Hague and elsewhere are appointed uh, by or influenced by the imperial powers themselves. So there, there's a, it's very difficult terrain. Uh, but let's assume that they get the relatively independent judges. Uh, they get uh, decisions which uh, condemn imperial powers, but they don't have mechanisms of enforcement. The imperial powers simply ignore them uh, and go about their business. Uh, that's, so there's one is that there is uh, interference in, in these processes, but the the uh the claimants the victims uh can get a moral victory and in cases where the imperial powers themselves are not directly affected say that the uh, a client regime of an imperial power engages in in certain criminal offenses violating international law uh, they can be condemned, second-level powers, in other words, uh, who are collaborators of empire, have on occasion uh, been uh, charged with crimes against humanity, etc. You have the moral uh, uh, 
moral approval and judgments, which can serve to uh, perhaps influence uh, certain publics in the imperial countries and uh, can initiate some internal judicial processes which can challenge uh, this power. The, the issue of the drones, for example, uh, starts from the outside. Uh, there's some uh, Geneva agreements uh, that uh, condemn it, and that has an impact on uh, legal bodies in the United States, the ACLU, Center for Constitutional Studies. These, in turn, influence uh, certain congressmen, opinion leaders in the United States, who then raise issues, uh, congressional issues, uh, with the executive, and uh, and uh, th- that that indirectly can have an effect in either modifying or limiting or uh, forcing the government on a on a defensive footing. Once again, Professor James Petrus of Binghamton University. Well, I hope at the very least we've started to flesh out for you. And again, if you explore the subject matter in the sh- in the show notes, you'll find even more to back up what we're talking about today. That in fact the ideas and ideals of international law are nothing more than a false front for the imperialistic urge to conquer, and that they will only ever be selectively applied by the imperial p- forces against their enemies, or in certain cases against certain pieces uh, players on the chessboard that they don't particularly care about. They might allow some uh, token prosecutions to happen that uh, that will serve to further establish the precedents and will allow them to continue to apply victor's justice when, as, and if they want. And that leaves us with the very real problem of what to really do with the real criminals who really have perpetrated crimes of unbelievably unbelievable scale and scope on the international stage. And just one example, for example, has reared its head this week, where we had uh, a story that we covered on the New World Next Week this week from the 4th of March 2013 from RT.com, UN demands prosecution of Bush-era CIA crimes, which reads in part, quote, A United Nations investigator has demanded that the U.S. publish classified documents regarding the CIA's human rights violations under former President George W. Bush, with hopes that the documents will lead to the prosecution of public officials. Documents about the CIA's program of rendition and secret detention of suspected terrorists have remained classified, even though President Obama's administration has publicly condemned the use of these enhanced interrogation techniques. The U.S. has not prosecuted any of its agents for human rights violations. UN investigator Ben Emerson, the UN special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights while countering terrorism, said that the classified documents protect the names of individuals who are responsible for serious human rights violations. Despite this clear repudiation of the unlawful actions carried out by the Bush-era CIA, many of the facts remain classified, and no public official has so far been brought to justice in the United States, Emerson said in a report to the UN Human Rights Council, according to Reuters. End quote. Well, duh. Of course, no one has been brought to uh, justice in the United States. Of course, they are not likely to be brought to justice anytime in the foreseeable future or anytime under the current regime of power, which does not bear the imprimatur of the Republican or the Democrat Party, but of 
organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, which completely cut across both sides of that phony political aisle to encompass all of the bought and paid for political puppets who are really no more than mouthpieces for the real ruling elite. And what better example of that can there be than the blatant, absolute, unarguable crimes against humanity that have been perpetrated by people like the Bush administration, which have not, and according to Obama and his attorney general, will not be prosecuted anytime, uh, again, within the foreseeable future. That is the absolute shining, glaring example of how this international rule of law is nothing other than lip service and an attempt to play on our feelings and our innate sense of justice in order to get us to uh, to put our energy and support into organizations which themselves are completely controlled and which will never actually bring us the justice we're seeking. So uh, again, we have the UN Special Rapporteur on the Protection and prom- Promotion of Human Rights trying to argue that this, the, the, these types of documents are going to lead to some kind of prosecution. Uh, I will believe it when I see it, and I don't know who made this person the the authority on human rights. Uh, who died and made him God is the old expression, and one could very well ask that, that in this case, because of course the United Nations itself is a body that uh, has nothing to do with you or I. It is something that was created specifically from the ashes of uh, the League of Nations by the same people from in organizations like the CFR, and it is there to serve globalist interests and globalist interests only. So I am not waiting or holding my breath for them to please, pretty please, prosecute the Bush administration for the CIA rendition and torture or for 9-11 or for any of the other crimes against humanity that have been waged in the past several years. And that brings us to the very real question of then how do we achieve justice for these crimes? Because justice still does need to be done and it needs to be done in a way that will make clear for future generations and for future would-be dictators and and members of that upper elite or would-be elite that they cannot get away with such actions. And one of those ideas which presents itself is, well, why do we need a special realm called international law to prosecute crimes which can be prosecuted in any jurisdiction in which they take place by the national uh, authorities or whatever else already exists in that locality. Now, for example, we can look at the Italian example of that very same CIA rendition and torture program, which back in 2009 actually found several CIA agents guilty of kidnapping in the case of a terrorist uh, suspect that was renditioned and tortured by the CIA and its cronies. So we can turn, for example, to The Guardian for more on this story from the 4th of November 2009. Italian court finds CIA agents guilty of kidnapping terrorism suspect. Quote, 23 Americans were tonight convicted of kidnapping by an Italian court at the end of the first trial anywhere in the world involving the CIA's extraordinary rendition program for abducting terrorist suspects. The former head of the CIA in Milan, Robert Lady, was given an eight-year jail sentence for his part in the seizure of Osama Mustafa Hassan Nasser, known as Abu Omar, who claimed that he was subsequently tortured in Egypt. Lady's superior, Jeff Castelli, the then head of the CIA in Italy, and two other Americans were acquitted on the grounds that they enjoyed diplomatic immunity. But another 21 alleged CIA operatives and U.S. Air Force were each sentenced to five years in jail, All were tried in absentia, and those who were convicted will be regarded as fugitives under Italian law, end quote. 
In other words, if they were ever to step foot back on Italian soil, they would presumably be arrested. Um, but that's about as far as Italy can go. Again, this is the limits of the the national law system that that exists, and this is the whole reason for the argument of why we need an international court with international legitimacy to act internationally in order to bring these criminals to justice. There is no place for a fugitive to run if there is an international, a world court that has jurisdiction to act anywhere in the world. And, of course, we can see coming behind that idea all of the other ideas that would be needed to make that idea possible. Well, if you have an international court with international jurisdiction, you'll need people, some sort of police agency that would be able to act internationally to physically bring these people to the court of justice in The Hague or wherever else this is going to be. So you would need some sort of international policing force, which at the very least would rely on local policing forces and be able to dictate to them who to take into custody and where to transfer transport them, but in the long run, could ex- it could actually be an international force with the ability to actually move its forces into the uh, into whatever nation it wants in order to get the fugitives from justice it needs. So again, I think that this is going down the wrong road. And I think that we have to stop looking for the idea that justice is going to come in a courtroom as arbitrated by some judge that has been appointed by some political candidate somewhere. I think we have to start detaching ourselves from from the entire system of justice as we have come to know it, as in justice handed down by the gavel of a judge in a courtroom in a, with a uh, standing in front of a flag draped with the admiralty gold fringes under admiralty law. This is not the type of justice that we are seeking ultimately, and with the false template for false solutions, we will only get false answers about how to proceed. The real ways that we can, the only real ways we can proceed is to realize that the victors of these great conflicts and the people who are at the top of the pyramid can never be brought to justice by the people who are below them on that pyramid because they will always find ways to get out of it from because they control that system, whether it be monetarily or otherwise. They have complete control over these courtrooms and to expect that justice will be meted out in them is uh, not only asking the impossible, but literally putting your faith in something that will never happen, no matter how hard you try. So I think that we have to understand that the the only way to undermine the the impunity and the immunity that these people enjoy, enjoy is to undermine their political power and their monetary power over you and I. And that, again, is never going to happen in a courtroom. It's never going to be banged down by a gavel uh, of a judge. That is the only that is only the type of thing that can happen when we start withdrawing ourselves from this system entirely. The economic system that we've been woven into, the societal system, the system that expects us to expect justice to be found in these types of courtrooms, the system of political power and control, which somehow legitimizes these political candidates to speak for you and me, because presumably, supposedly, 51% of the people touched a screen to vote for this or that candidate four years ago. This is the system that we have to thoroughly delegitimize in order to pull the rug out from under 
slander these people completely. They only have the impunity to do what they do because they have the assurance that they have the military power, because they have the economic power, because they have the political power to get away with what they do. So we have to start withdrawing ourselves from that system by once again completely delegitimizing the political institutions that have grown up around them and to withdraw ourselves, our consent, our time, our energy, our money, and our resources from that system. That is the the total 100% taking ourselves out of the system that will be the only answer to being to taking stripping away the layers of protection that these would be so-called rulers uh have over uh, over our society and this is a part of the the broader project that the corporate report it has been propounding for a very long time and we've talked about many of the different little aspects of what people can do because there are many, 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 many different ways that we can withdraw ourselves from this system to start to delegitimize it and to start to erode the power of the elites. It's a very large project and it involves each and every one of us making the conscious decision to start withdrawing ourselves from this. And that means we have to start creating communities, uh, community alternative currencies. We have to start trading with each other locally through transactions that do not pass through the uh, the uh, legal tender currency system that uh, that has been instituted upon us. It means that we have to start building up alternatives in terms of media, in terms of uh, institutions that will will function, in terms of common law courts that are based on natural law rather than these admiralty law courts through which they are expecting us to seek justice. It involves us creating communities of people who are truly free individuals that are interacting on a free and individual basis. And through that, we will finally, I hope, one day come to the complete delegitimization of those would-be power elite who have acted with impunity and continue to do so even as they start to consolidate their power on the international stage. And if they ever do grasp that new world order that uh, that they want to bring into power, then God help us all, because that is exactly the system that they want to use to enslave us all. And that's a very important thing that I'm going to leave you on today, just again to cogitate on the fact that we are all part of the system that is enslaving us, and every single day we choose what to support with our time, money, and energy. We either choose to support the corporations which feed into the Council on Foreign Relations and similar organizations, which are all part of this vast grid that's seeking to enslave us, or we choose to, to withdraw our support from it. So on that note, we will continue exploring solutions to these problems here on the Corbett Report. That's going to do it for today. So thank you once again for your time in this healthy alternative media. And I'm looking forward to talking to you all again next week. It's a matter of jurisdiction, the power to speak the law. It's jurisdiction that matters after all. Back in the trial court.